because Radio Ozadi is here and because you cover topics A, B, and C, we can at least cover topic A. It is the first week of September 2020, and welcome to episode 40 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, Senior Fellow at NSI. Today, we're thrilled to be doing a deep dive with our friend Jamie Fly, Senior Fellow and Senior Advisor to the President at the German Marshall Fund in Berlin, Germany. Most recently, Jamie served as the President of Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty in Prague in the Czech Republic. Before that, Jamie served in the Senate, the White House, and at the Defense Department. He was the Counselor for Foreign and National Security Affairs to Senator Marco Rubio. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Les. So I have to ask, because I know it's a great story, can you tell us how you came to leave Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty? Yeah, I was president of RFERL for about 10 and a half months through mid-June of this year. And in early June, a new CEO of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which dispenses the grants to the U.S. International Broadcasting Networks was confirmed by the Senate. And this is the first time that there's been a Senate-confirmed CEO at that federal agency. And that new CEO, Michael Pack, decided that he wanted to start with a clean slate in what has been dubbed by some a Wednesday night massacre, removed all of the network heads and mass in one fell swoop which is related to some powers that he was given by the Congress when they created this position. But I think the Congress, as it was debating those changes, I think never really imagined that they would be exercised in this way. But that's how I sadly came to leave RFERL a few months ago. So it really had nothing to do with you per se. It was more this change in management of the new agency and a rather abrupt decision by someone who was brand new to the operation. Yeah, I mean, that's what Michael Pack uh, told me personally, and I think conveyed to us and has said publicly since that he was not passing judgment on the work of any of us at the networks that he wanted to start fresh. I'd say it was quite frustrating for me because I had only been at RFERL for about 10 and a half months and had had arrived there last year with a mission of trying to make RFERL more relevant, trying to ensure that we were competitive with others in the information domain across Eurasia. And we were just getting started in really implementing some of the reforms that I was trying to put into place. And ultimately, my biggest concern is for RFE and the other organizations, constant turnover at the top, constant leadership changes are really unhealthy for organizations of that size and have a chilling effect. A lot of major issues get postponed when you don't have clear, consistent, long-term leadership. And I think that's going to be a major challenge here for all of the networks, but especially RFERL, if we don't have new presidents appointed in the near future. And right now, there have not been any permanent presidents appointed at at these networks. And now we're two and a half months after this personnel action. So let's get into the work of RFERL. There are huge demonstrations going on in Belarus right now in the wake of a very controversial election. Alexander Lukashenko, who's been the president there for 26 years, he's the last dictator of Europe. It's conceivable he's on his way out. Talk about Radio Liberty and the role it's playing in something like what's happening in Belarus. Yeah, Belarus is a perfect example of the important work and the role that RFERL plays on the ground in many countries across Eurasia that do not have independent media. 
RFERL language services as much as possible are usually forward deployed. When RFE can operate inside the country, they prefer to set up bureaus and have journalists who live and work in their countries covering politics, society, tackling issues, which other media outlets would be, quite frankly, too frightened to tackle. And the Belarus service, Radio Svoboda, has been doing that for decades, even prior to the latest protests. During the protests, I've been very proud to watch as a president emeritus about how the service has handled itself. They've been on the front line. Their people have been occasionally arrested while covering protests. They've been dogged in their determination to get news and information out to Belarusian society, despite government efforts to block their website, to shut down the internet, to target journalists for persecution, to try to prevent the dissemination of information. Um, but the service has done incredibly important work and stepped up its efforts despite all of this pressure. And the success of their work was even just displayed in recent weeks. One of their film crews actually caught video of a protest happening outside Belarusian state TV, where the crowd recognized the crew and recognized that they worked for Svoboda and started to chant Radio Svoboda, Radio Svoboda, in appreciation for what they'd been doing. And so it's important to remember as we debate the bureaucratic structure of the governance of these institutions, we really have multiple national treasures of networks that are respected by their audiences in their countries. And we really need to jealously guard the success of those networks and make sure that whatever is being done by Congress or in Washington does not undermine the effectiveness of what we've been able to achieve and causes the audience to go away because they don't trust the objectivity and independence of those journalists out in the field on the front lines. It's really the greatest threat to Vladimir Putin and his style of authoritarian government, right? That there can be the free exchange of information that people can understand what's at stake in their lives, in their government. They can see that their voices can be heard. And if it can happen in Belarus, it can happen in Russia. So it's hard to tell sometimes from the Beltway how much of a difference this stuff can make. But the work of your old colleagues in Minsk and around Belarus really are the hottest thing that's happening in the globe today. Yeah. And I mean, it's important to bring up Putin and his situation, which I do think is increasingly tenuous, you know, there's a reason why when some of RFERL's Russian language journalists tried to go to Belarus and get in the country to cover the events on the ground, that the Belarusian authorities arrested them and deported them back to Russia, because even coverage of events outside of a country's borders can be explosive. When I was there last summer, we obviously had the Hong Kong protests. We tried to increase our coverage of what was going on in Hong Kong, which was well outside of RFERL's coverage area, but still very relevant in societies like Russia which were grappling with some of their own public protests around the Moscow City Council elections. This imagery, the information about what other citizens are doing around the world to express their views and to exercise their rights, that can be an incredible weapon, which can ultimately call into question a lot of the control that someone like Vladimir Putin is trying to exercise. And so I do think that's why we now see Putin doing all he can to support Lukashenko. And on the information side, uh, very sadly, we've seen the Russians surge resources to the Lukashenko government. We had a lot of defections from Belarusian state TV 
and other propaganda networks and technicians and anchors resigning in protest. And the Russians have tried to fill the void and just sent Russian nationals in from RT and other networks to staff those propaganda outlets because they understand um, the power of the media, the power of news and information, and how the protests and the opposition need to be able to communicate with the broader public to advance their goals. We didn't really plan on discussing this per se, but talk about the bang for the buck the American taxpayer gets from RFERL. This is not a huge operation. There are taxpayer dollars that go to support it, but the impact compared to the cost seems massive to me. In other words, we're getting a lot of results for the money we're spending. If my math is correct, the entire cost of RFERL is much less than the cost of a single jet fighter, for example. It's probably the case that the annual budget in recent years at RFE has been around $125 million. All of the U.S. Agency for Global Media, I think, is between seven and $800 million. That's covering a variety of networks, including Voice of America, which has a slightly different role. But yeah, in many of these countries, RFERL is sometimes the only, but often one of the few independent outlets that still exists. And it provides a service both to the audience it reaches, whether that's through radio in some cases still, or TV, or increasingly digitally. But it also helps push open the information space. On one of my first trips about a year ago to Central Asia, I was meeting with civil society activists in Tajikistan, country orders Afghanistan. And I was told because Radio Ozadi, which is our local brand in Tajikistan, because Radio Ozadi is here and because you cover topics A, B, and C, we can at least cover topic A. We can at least start ourselves as another independent media outlet to cover something because we can cite you and the fact that you're covering something gives us a little bit of top cover to cover one aspect of that topic. Because otherwise, if you weren't here doing it and we just covered that corruption issue or the transgression of the government, we'd be shut down, we'd be jailed, we'd be kicked out of the country. And so even beyond the audience that RFERL reaches with its own content, it really helps create that larger space in many of these countries for other independent media outlets to hopefully flourish. And it's playing an incredibly important role as disinformation and efforts to control the information domain become a favored tool of authoritarians trying to maintain their grip on, on power. So the budget for RFERL, like all parts of the U.S. government, is determined by Congress. And Congress has decided to invest a certain amount of money in RFERL based on its evaluation of the work that's being done. But in terms of the administration, you do get this sense, and I think based on kind of your story and how you ended up leaving RFERL, there's a certain skepticism about some of these activities because it's not necessarily directly related to a mercantilist approach to U.S. foreign policy. It's a little more or values-based, perhaps, than interest-based, although I would certainly argue with that. There just seems to be a skepticism of anything that seems global. And I put that in air quotes because I'm not sure it's a real thing. Are you at all worried about how this kind of weird ideological skepticism of the work of RFERL may impact it going forward? 
There is a danger. I will say that on the funding side, this administration has put forward multiple budgets to the Congress, which have slashed all of the entities funded out of the international affairs budget. And the U.S. Agency for Global Media is one of those. So under this administration's proposed budgets, RFERL and all the other networks would have seen significant increases in their funding. Congress has ignored those budgets for the most part and continued to fund the networks at their previously funded levels. So that's been positive. I'd say in my day-to-day interactions as president with State Department officials, the State Department was broadly supportive of our work. They honored the firewall between the executive branch and these private grantees. They did not dictate coverage to us. But when our journalists were being attacked or pressured, they, as well as European governments, were often willing to speak out. I also heard testimonials often from U.S. ambassadors out in the field when I would go see them about the impact that RFERL was having on the ground. One ambassador in Central Asia told us that it was the best use of U.S. taxpayer dollars he had ever seen in that particular country. And he obviously is sitting there as chief of mission would be overseeing all kinds of security assistance, U.S. AID grants, etc. So I think they saw the relevance of the work. I think the broader problem that we're facing right now, and we'll have to see what happens during Michael Pack's tenure, is this tension that has existed for some time, more so with Voice of America, but also sometimes people kind of tar the private grantees with this as well, that these are grantees who should be putting out messaging that is directly related to -to day-to-day U.S. policy, that should be fully coordinated with U.S. policy, that should be in line with whatever the administration's policy is. And that's not the statutory role of the private grantees like RFERL. They are supposed to be doing independent journalism. Voice of America is a different story because they've always had in their charter the mission of telling America's story and in part explaining U.S. policy to the world. And so I think this is the question of how much control is this administration and future administrations going to try to exert over the broadcasters? Because I would argue if you try to exert too much control, you ultimately will lose your audience. Audiences are not going to come to follow this content if they believe that it is produced at Foggy Bottom in Washington. They do not want to hear U.S. government talking points. They want good, objective, independent journalism about what is happening in their countries that they cannot get anywhere else. And this is the tension. And I think some of it relates to the longstanding debate ever since the U.S. Information Agency was dissolved about how the State Department also talks about America to the world. And I actually think there's a ripe moment here in the next year to really look at some of these issues about how should we do public diplomacy from the government side? How should we do U.S. international broadcasting? And what are the lanes that people should stay in as they're doing each of these things? And what is the structure that we need in the State Department? Do we need to enhance the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy and expand that role and give them more resources? What do we want U.S. international broadcasting to look like? But I do not think the right approach is to foist all of that agenda of explaining American policy on to these respected journalistic outlets like RFERL, Radio Free Asia, and Middle East Broadcasting Network, because I think you're ultimately going to undermine everything that's been achieved by these outlets in, in recent decades. So Congress, a couple of years ago, of course, passed the 
law that created the U.S. Agency for Global Media. It was the result of years of oversight, some concerns about the management structure at the Broadcasting Board of Governors and how things were perhaps not going as well as they could have under that model. So Congress, after some years of work, finally passed this legislation that really did transform things a little bit. Do you think, based on what you've seen in the last year, that Congress should go back and take another look at that law and possibly amend it? Yeah, I'm of the view, which seems to be a growing sense on Capitol Hill as well, that Congress went too far with these latest reforms. I understand the frustrations that Congress had with the previous governance structure. There was a part-time bipartisan board. The board did a fantastic job of insulating the networks from political interference, which was a key part of their role. But when it came to taking executive action and making decisions, it was an unwieldy board. It was slow moving. And uh, I think that created a lot of frustration. Now, with the other responsibility they had of preventing bad things from happening, that's kind of why you want this cumbersome setup. And so it was designed that way for a reason. But I think it has now politicized the role of the CEO far too much. There's no power the advisory board that will eventually exist, but they don't really have much authority. And so I think we now run the risk, whether it's Michael Pack or whether it's a future CEO under a different administration, that these networks are going to be kind of jerked from one extreme to the other, whatever, depending on whatever political party is in the White House. And again, that's not healthy for their brand. That's not healthy for their audiences who are coming to them not to hear what the Trump administration view is of Russia policy, if they're sitting in Russia, but to get good, independent, objective journalism about what's going on in their country. And I think the current structure is going to lead us down a path where ultimately the networks will have less credibility with the audience. And again, it's not that I'm opposed to anyone communicating effectively, whether it's the Trump administration or a future administration, about their policy. But I think that should be done officially through the State Department or other mechanisms rather than through these journalistic outfits. Let's pull way back and maybe go to a a 100,000 feet and take a look at the landscape in terms of global public diplomacy. We've got great power rivalries with China for sure, and possibly with Russia, certainly in its zone of influence. Based on what you've seen on the ground and in the places you've been, and particularly your work for the last year, what's your assessment of overall how the United States is doing in its public diplomacy efforts vis-a-vis China and Russia? Yeah, this is really what took me out to Prague initially because I was working on some of these issues at the German Marshall Fund prior to going to RFERL. And I was concerned from what I saw about how effective the Russians in particular had become in using the information domain to their advantage, including in the United States and other Western democracies. And I wanted to see how we could build upon the great work that organizations like RFERL have done over the years and how to make ourselves more relevant in the information space. What I found is, you know, it's mixed. I mean, we've got amazing People who are showing great courage, like I talked about before with the team in Belarus. Belarus is just one example. But I don't think they've been well served by Congress, by the oversight structure, the constant changing of the oversight structure. They've been underfunded too. I mean, $125 million is a lot of money, but I can tell you that RFERL was getting outspent by several orders of magnitude in almost every country we were operating in, certainly in every country where the Russians were engaged. 
and China, even though RFERL does not broadcast into China, China was an increasingly important player economically in many RFERL countries. And China was starting to nibble around the edges of the information space in those countries. And once China decides to devote significant resources and starts to learn some lessons from the Russian approach, which you've already seen them do in places like Central and Eastern Europe, even in the West, in some of their messaging around coronavirus, they're going to be a significant player and doing all they can to undermine independent media and the free spread of information. And so we're going to be even at, more, at a greater disadvantage. So I was looking back, hopeful about the people and the brands that we have and the passion that people have for the mission, but incredibly frustrated about how I think we've tied ourselves in knots in a number of different ways and the actions by Mr. Pack and the kind of disarray and uncertainty now as all of these organizations are really effectively leaderless is just the latest example of that. And so I'm hoping that if we can provoke a conversation about what we want to achieve as a country, what resources we're willing to devote to that, what the structure should look like, that maybe we can build some bipartisan consensus and start to tackle this problem head on, because um, I fear that otherwise we're just going to continue to muddle along and our competitors are really taking advantage of that strategic disarray that's been in place for quite some time in uh, U.S. international broadcasting. It seems like China and Russia have come into an alignment against what the U.S. is trying to do in the world. As you point out, we've been pretty muddled. We're not really as sure of ourselves as we used to be the last couple of years. But Russia and China have an interest in shutting down free speech and shutting down good journalism and being able to have governments control messages more authoritatively authoritarian approach. During the Cold War, of course, uh, we were able to exploit the differences between the Soviet Union and China, and that helped us win the Cold War. Now it seems like we've lost that, that schism, that schism that really worked for us. Do you see that in your work in public diplomacy, that there may be an opportunity here once we get our house in order and devote the resources necessary to this work that we need to devote? We can restore our ability to kind of push Russia and China apart and have them not necessarily working together against us. It's a good question uh, because there's obviously been a lot of debate about the supposed partnership between Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin and the extent of that. I've always tended to believe that, especially from the Russian perspective, they will have to realize that that partnership is not in their long-term interest. You know, they may tactically decide to cooperate with the Chinese when it benefits them. But I think just because of demographics and population and economic disparities, that that is an incredibly risky long-term proposition for the Russians. But on the information side, the interesting thing, again, I think that what we've seen is the Chinese learning from Russian tactics and adopting some of the same style of information operations. In, during the coronavirus pandemic, just watching that from RFERL, we were seeing across multiple markets, Russian overt networks and Chinese overt networks, as well as covert efforts on social media, basically pushing the same stories, the same conspiracy theories, sometimes amplifying the others conspiracy theories about the origins of the virus, you know, whether it supposedly came from a U.S. lab or was brought to Wuhan by U.S. service members who were there for military, athletic competition, things like that. 
it was very interesting because I had not seen, even though I'd been following disinformation for the last several years, so many clear examples of those two players using each other's information operations to try to advance their own narrative. The other thing, which sitting in Europe, you sometimes see the Russians have become masters at trying to pit EU member states against each other and then also to pit the EU or NATO, European NATO allies against the United States. I think we also began to see some examples of the Chinese playing similar games during coronavirus as well. So I think they're going to be tactically partners here and there. I'm personally less concerned about uh, them forming some sort of long-term alliance because I just don't think it would serve especially Russia's interest in the long run. And I think ultimately, because of some of the pressures that Vladimir Putin is dealing with at home, he also needs to be especially careful. We did a lot of journalism inside our Russian services about China's growing economic influence in parts of Russia. There's been a lot of public backlash in many countries across Eurasia to Chinese investments, major Chinese projects. Usually, my experience was at RFE, governments usually had to hide their cooperation with the Chinese from their citizens, which is why we were covering it, because like many issues, whenever governments are lying or not revealing information to their citizens, that's the sort of thing that good independent journalists should be digging up and exposing. So I think they need to be very careful as they pursue cooperation with China, because I'm not sure uh, your average Russian is going to be all that supportive of, of that sort of gambit. Let's talk about Europe, maybe Western Europe a little bit, since you brought up Russian efforts to divide European countries against each other, to divide Europe from the U.S. Right now in the Republican Party, our party, there's growing skepticism in the administration and on the Hill over the U.S.-German relationship. And there's a perception that Germany is moving closer to Russia in certain ways, particularly in the energy sphere. What's your feel on the ground? You're in Berlin now. You were in Prague, which is right next door for a year. What's your feel for the push and pull that are going on with Germany right now? Yeah, I have followed the debates inside the administration about U.S.-German relations on uh, the troop withdrawals, et cetera, and focus on um, 2%. I think the positive story about Western Europe and Central Europe writ large, including Germany, is that there has been a slow-moving but still a moving debate about China in particular here in Europe. There are many more Europeans than there were a year or two ago who see China as the most significant strategic threat that the Western world faces in the coming decades and are starting to be willing to do something about it. Again, I said it's slow moving. I think the debate should be moving much more quickly given what China is doing in places like Xinjiang, Hong Kong, what China is doing economically, also given the pandemic. But it's a strategic debate that's evolving nonetheless. So that's a positive thing about what we're seeing across Europe right now. On Russia, it's been a mixed story for quite some time. Les, you were probably still on the Hill when I was too, uh, in 2013, 2014, as we were debating Ukraine policy, as Democrats and Republicans were trying to push the Obama administration to be more forceful in its response to Russia's annexation of Crimea and invasion of eastern Ukraine. And the Europeans were always trailing behind the U.S. And I remember uh, members of both parties were trying to encourage the Germans, the others in Europe to be more aggressive in their response to Russia's actions. 
It's obviously a lot of it's tied to business interests, economic interests, some of it's political and the, the sense that these issues are best resolved through dialogue, through negotiation. No matter how many times that's been tried and failed, there's still always an interest in some quarters in trying again. I am optimistic, though, that that also is going to continue to change. Right now, Alexei Navalny is actually in a hospital several miles from here. It was the Germans who stepped up and got him medevaced out, uh, the Russian opposition figure who apparently was poisoned by uh, the Kremlin. I found that when we had problems in Russia, the Europeans were very vocal, very willing to raise issues with the Kremlin about the fate of independent journalists, very active on uh, human rights issues. But uh, these are issues where the U.S. should be prodding Europe to do more, to move more quickly, to be more aggressive, and ultimately not to pursue projects like Nord Stream 2, which um, isn't in the interests of moving democracy forward in Russia, advancing freedom in Russia. So I don't think Germany is creeping closer to Russia. I think some of these are irritants that have been there for quite some time. And we're now just having a more pitched conversation about them in the U.S.-German relationship. But ultimately, I think the problem we faced in recent years under this administration is we haven't been able to agree across the Atlantic about what that shared agenda is. And that's where I think China should play an important role. But you need to be able to develop the political goodwill on both sides uh, to work on that framework. And in this administration, we've now reached the point where I think many in the U.S. don't want to deal with Germany in the way we have in the past. And many Germans are ready to write off the current administration um, and ignore whatever it says. And that's not healthy and that's not going to help us develop a partnership on the strategic issues that we do need to tackle in the coming decades. And so that's probably not going to happen until there's change at the top, both in, in Washington, ultimately in here. There'll be a, a change in leadership most likely here in Germany in about a year. So let's talk about China for a little bit. You know, the feel you get in Washington is that the Chinese program, the Belt and Road Initiative, pushing money out of China into Eurasia, developing infrastructure in other countries at their expense, you know, at really high uh, interest rates with some sovereign risk for the countries where this infrastructure is going, that China's not really helping itself. Like in a way, it's its own worst enemy. It's not winning the hearts and minds of its neighbors. And, and a lot of that works to our advantage. Is that happening in Europe? And is that what you've been describing? Are you seeing that? And how can U.S. public diplomacy efforts, whether it's through RFERL or other mechanisms, exploit that opportunity? Yeah, I think it's a mixed bag. I think China has been successful in some countries in using its economic partnerships, its investments to then curry political favor, certainly in parts of Central Asia, the Balkans, places like Serbia, but then even in the heart of uh, Western Europe, it's gotten support in some quarters in the European Union in places like Greece and Italy and Portugal. And that's been helpful to it because as the view in other parts of Europe about China has hardened, they've been able to prevent the European Union acting together on some issues, um, condemning China on human rights, for instance. There have been cases where individual states that benefit economically from China have blocked EU consensus on joint statements, on joint proposals. So the Chinese have used some of that to their advantage. I will say, though, from some of my travels, I had conversations sometimes with heads of state in, in places like Central Asia, 
And the sense I got, uh, at least the pitch they would make to a, a listening American, was that they realized that this was not in their interest and they were desperate for some alternatives. And that's a, an area where I think the U.S. and the Europeans and the Japanese and others have maybe fallen short in recent years. There's been a lot of conversation about some sort of coordination amongst allies to put together economic resources that could be provided to some of these states as an alternative to the BRI projects. And there's been a little bit of that done here and there, but I think a lot more work needs to be done on that front. The other thing I just note in this area where I do think the Chinese have benefited is during the pandemic. Clearly, their image took a hit just given the origins of the pandemic and that you've seen that in some of the polling. But I can tell you, having lived through the pandemic in the Czech Republic, which is not China friendly by any means, there was a moment back in March, early April, when everyone was in lockdown, when the cases were rising, when the world was starting to grapple with this crisis. And uh, the U.S. was a bit lagging behind in terms of the virus hitting the U.S. Uh, public. The U.S. was not really in a forward-leaning position, able to help, not just coming out of the recovery like the Chinese. And there were planes landing in Prague, I think, every day for weeks, bringing medical equipment. Now, what we now know from the work of some very good NGOs in Prague who track this is the Czechs paid for that equipment. Uh, a lot of the equipment was faulty, but that's not how it was presented at the time. There was a massive public diplomacy campaign by the Chinese, sometimes facilitated by Czech officials, certain Czech officials, outside groups. And that scene played out in a variety of countries across Europe for months. And I do think earned them some goodwill that they didn't deserve because we all know how the virus came about and also the superficiality of a lot of that support. So it's, it's a mixed bag in terms of what they've achieved, I think, even in the last six months to a year. And uh, we're going to have to see if the United States, if the European Union can get its act together and come up with a consolidated message during crises like this in the future and not create the vacuum that allows an actor like the Chinese to step in and take advantage of, of a crisis and to, to, to spin it uh, to their advantage. I want to ask you about the work that you're going to do there in Berlin now that you're back at the German Marshall Fund. But first, one more question on China, kind of, again, stepping back and seeing more than just public diplomacy, but also U.S. development programs, diplomatic programs, really the full 150 accounts, State Department, USAID, all of the other agencies that are kind of doing soft power or smart power, as Hillary Clinton used to say. Should the U.S. be reorienting its efforts to challenge China around the globe? Are we doing a good job of that? Should we review it? What's your sense? Are we seized with the matter as much as we should be? I think we are. I mean, my, my sense, you know, following it from outside the administration has been that there have been a lot of attempts to rethink how the U.S. provides assistance to frontline states that are being tempted by Chinese resources. I know there's much more coordination with other partners like the Japanese, like the Australians. I believe Secretary Pompeo has now announced a new EU-U.S. dialogue on China, which I think is incredibly important and also a mechanism for some of these conversations. There's already an effort that's been started in this administration that I hope continues, whether it's in a second Trump term or in a Biden administration, because I, I do think that will be incredibly important. I don't think we've maybe gone as far yet on the U.S. international broadcasting side. There's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about the structure of U.S. international broadcasting. 
but I don't think there's really been a holistic effort to look at how we tackle the China challenge. And I think that's going to be incredibly important, given that we're at the cusp of the beginning of the, the Chinese information offensive. So that's one area where I think much more needs to be done. In general, I mean, I worked at the Defense Department in the Bush administration. I'm a huge supporter of larger uh, military budgets. But I will say, I do think we need to continue to look at whether all of the funds that we're allocating need to go to DOD, whether some of those uh, could be going to other parts of the national security apparatus. I mean, that's been the frustrating thing, even as President Trump, I think, deserves credit for increasing DOD's budget after some significant cuts because of sequestration of the Obama administration. Um, the international affairs budget has not been increasing and has been under constant threat from this White House. And I don't think if we care about competition with China, if we care about competition with Russia, that we can go on with a situation where we're just increasing the defense budget and not increasing the other aspects of the, of the international affairs budget at the same time. Couldn't agree more. If you can, tell us what you're going to be working on in Berlin for the next little while. Yeah, I'll be in Berlin for the next year here at the German Marshall Fund, which has an office in, in Berlin. Some of my time here will be focused on the things we've been talking about, the future of U.S. international broadcasting. But I'm also hoping to reconnect with a lot of old German friends and engage in a little bit of the debate about where U.S.-German relations go here in the next year. And I'm also thinking about working on a, a longer term project about where American foreign policy is going here at the end of the first Trump term. And uh, kind of looking at some of, I think, the themes that maybe have, that started actually well before Donald Trump entered the White House, that started perhaps in the Obama administration about some questions about America's role in the world, some of our goals, as you mentioned earlier, where there hasn't been a lot of clarity necessarily about what we're trying to achieve. And look at that these tensions on both sides of the aisle in uh, the U.S. and see if we are getting serious about the China challenge, what we need to be doing to actually lay out what we stand for, what we expect of partners and how we do that. So um, more, to, more to come on that. That sounds great. I hope you uh, are willing to come back and, and talk about that once you're into that work. It sounds Certainly. fascinating. Jamie, thanks a lot for being with us. Uh, it's great to see you. It's great to catch up. Good luck in Berlin. Great. Thanks for having me, Les. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Andy Young for research assistance, and of course, our producer and director, Grant Haver, for his terrific work. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.